Now, on to our message for this morning. Um, we're approaching a very, very important passage. And of course, every passage in Scripture is important because every word comes from the mouth of God. Um, this passage in particular, though, speaks very clearly and very profoundly to our salvation. Um, up until now, we've read through Ephesians chapter 1, and we've seen in chapter 1 the praises of Paul to God over the blessings of salvation. And then at the end of chapter 1, we saw him lift up a prayer for us to better know God, to better understand these wonderful truths. And it ended up with the power of God um, that, uh, that, that it was expressed uh, through Christ in raising him up and seating him at the right hand and also in exalting him. And we have the blessing of having access to that power as well. But as we take a look at this passage, I'm reminded, uh, before we read this, I'm reminded of Old Testament history. And if you've read through Old Testament history, if you read through the entire Old Testament, one of the saddest downturns in all of the Old Testament had to have been the exile of Israel. Israel, from the time of Abraham, had been promised. Abraham, being the forefather, was promised that his heirs would inherit land and they would be in it forever. And then when Moses came, Moses established the Mosaic Covenant, and it was connected to the Abrahamic Covenant. And the idea was that you obey the Mosaic Law, and you will receive the blessings of the Abrahamic Covenant, the promised land that God has promised to Abraham to, to give to all of Israel. And they were in that promised land for many hundreds of years. But what you see in the Old Testament history is that they disobeyed. They disobeyed continuously. They disobeyed without repentance. They turned to false gods. They ran after the ways of the world. And then they were ultimately exiled. Now, the exile happened in two different phases. You had two different kingdoms of Israel. You had Israel in the north and you had Judah in the south. Israel in the north was exiled first to Assyria. That happened in 722 B.C. And then Judah was later exiled in three stages finally being exiled with the temple being destroyed in 586 B.C. They were exiled to Babylon. Now, within Babylon, there was a prophet that was raised up by the name of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was the prophet in Babylon. He would provide many prophecies about the future. In fact, twice he promised that God in the future would replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. But while you don't have to turn there, Ezekiel chapter 37 goes on to portray a very haunting vision that we call the Valley of Dry Bones, where Ezekiel is taken up and he sees this vision of a valley full of dry bones. And in fact, it's said that the bones are very, very dry. Now, obviously, when we see the bones of people, that means death. They are no longer living. The fact that they're very dry means that they have been dead for a long time. But then God tells Ezekiel, he asks him first, can anyone bring these bones back to life? Ezekiel says, I don't know. You know, Lord. And then the Lord proceeds to give a prophecy where he will breathe life back into those bones. He will bring them back from the grave. Now, that vision was not about resurrection. That vision was about spiritual life because spiritually Israel had been dead. Physically, they were alive, but they were pursuing false gods. 
And while the Mosaic Covenant, we know that the Mosaic Law, the law shows us how imperfect we are. The law shows us how much we needed a Savior. But for the Israelites, they just needed to be faithful to God. There were ongoing sacrifices and ongoing feasts and festivals in which their sins would continually be atoned for. But mainly they were being asked to remain faithful to God and they couldn't do that. And so this is sad that they were exiled, but Ezekiel gives hope that life will be breathed back into those who are dead. Now, how does that valley of dry bones relate to us? Because while Israel had been spiritually dead, Israel was not alone. They were not unique. In fact, for all of us, without Christ, we are spiritually dead. We are unresponsive to God. We follow after the ways of the world. We follow after the ways of Satan. We follow after the desires of our flesh. And that's what the first three verses tell us as we study that this morning. So having this simple understanding of where we came from, where we were headed, and the divine intervention that we needed from God in changing us and changing our direction, this should affect us in profound ways. This should affect us in ways that makes us want to serve the Lord. This should affect our hearts to want to do his will, to be able to share the good news and help others understand how they can avoid the judgment of God, the wrath of God that all of us deserve. This is absolutely foundational with regards to the gospel. It's foundational in how we understand the gospel, how we share the gospel, and ultimately how we live it out in our lives. But there is a struggle in living out our Christian lives, is there not? We know living the Christian life is not easy. There are distractions in the world. I mean, we are surrounded by more entertainment than probably all of the history of mankind. Social media, devices. I remember growing up and there was only three channels on the television set. Now there are hundreds, even thousands of channels. And a lot of people don't even watch it because they have their tablets, they have their phones, they have all kinds of social media, gaming, all kinds of distractions. There are earthly pursuits in this world. People that want to earn fame or recognition, they want to earn status, they want to get a job, they want to have a certain kind of job, they want to earn a certain amount of money. And there's also the difficulty that comes just from trials in our life. And you guys know these trials. Health issues, family issues, relationship issues, work issues, financial struggles. This life is full of difficulty. It is full of troubles. And then on top of that, we've got our day-to-day patterns, our day-to-day schedule with job and our obligations to family. And for those of you who go to school, you have school that you have to deal with day-to-day. And what is true for everyone is that when we hit these difficulties, when we hit these down periods, when spiritually we start to feel down, you know as well as I do that you're less likely to go to God during those times. You're less likely to turn to the scriptures. You're less likely to go to God in prayer. You're less likely to participate in fellowship, to come to church, and also your evangelism to unbelievers suffers. You don't have the same zeal. You don't have the same desire. You, you may even start to question just how important it really is. But beloved, it's during those times when we're spiritually down that we need God the most. 
It's those times when we're tempted not to read the word that we need the word the most. It's those times when we're not going to God in prayer that we need prayer the most. But the question is, how do we get ourselves back on track? Of course, you know the Nike logo, just do it, right? That's their motto. And certainly that's true. We should just do it. But we have to be careful of the reasons that we do what we do. You see, we can easily get caught in the trap of legalism. The idea of legalism is that you do this, 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 and this, and that's what makes you a good Christian. Sometimes in our hearts we seek quick-fix solutions. Just watch TV and look at the commercials and look at how many quick-fix solutions are being offered to people on how to get rich quickly, how to lose weight quickly, how to do this and do that quickly, things that normally take a long period of time. And if you live long enough, you know that all of them are nothing more than just schemes. They're just money baits. Quick-fix solutions don't last because quick-fix solutions don't address the real issue. And of course, as your pastor, I can sit here and guilt trip you. But guilt tripping doesn't work either. Because if I guilt you into doing the right thing for God, you no longer have joy. It steals your joy from doing what's right. It steals your joy from doing the will of God. And you want to have that joy. But where does that joy come from? You see, the best solution in all this is to drive that joy out of a heart that just loves and desires to serve God. It's a heart that, that remembers constantly God's goodness in our life from the time that we were saved and even now, day by day, as we continue to grow. It's a heart that reminds us just how undeserved we are to receive grace from God. How God has given you a new nature with a new purpose that's far greater than anything you had before. And it's a heart that is set upon the hope of our glorious future that no one can ever take away. Amen. It's a future that is far greater than even the greatest experiences, the greatest sights, the greatest sounds that this world has to offer. Beloved, let me remind you this, because one of the things that Paul talked about at the end of chapter one is that he wants you to know the hope of your calling. You remember that? He wants you to know and to understand the hope of your calling. And let me just say this. You have received the highest and the best calling a person could possibly receive. We have the beloved privilege and blessing to be able to serve the Lord our King. And as we look into the book of Ephesians, I remind you that Ephesians, the first three chapters are really centered upon theology, gospel theology, really. But the central command, the first command, shows up in chapter 4. And this is really the central command to the entire book, which is this, that I implore you. Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. The more you understand your calling, the more you understand the blessings involved in that, the more you remember what you've been saved from, the easier it is that from the heart, just like what we read earlier in John chapter 4, we, God is seeking true worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. Understanding these truths will help you to worship from the inside and from the out. Ephesians as a letter, this is all about how we live our lives. It's the blueprint for our Christian lives. And so this morning we're going to cover Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. As I've mentioned, this chapter and really these 10 verses are so foundational to the gospel 
Very few places, other places in the Bible, will you find the gospel so clearly communicated as they do in these first 10 verses. Now, I'm not going to cover all 10 this morning. I'm sure you're not shocked by that. Um, This will be part one of um, two, maybe three parts. But for this morning, we're going to focus our attention on verses one through three. And my purpose, my purpose this morning is to help you understand God's undeserved goodness in providing salvation to you so that you will be moved to joyfully serve him. Again, my purpose is to help you understand God's undeserved goodness in providing salvation to you so that you will be moved to joyfully serve him. Let's go ahead and read through these entire 10 verses, and then we'll start to break down our lesson for this morning, which will be the first three verses. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It's an amazing passage. One, and it's, it's an easy passage to understand, and yet there are some amazingly deep and profound truths to mine here. And that's exactly what we'll do. But looking at this, let me just share with you a few observations. First of all, verses 1 through 7. We're kind of getting used to this with Paul, but from verses 1 to 7, in the Greek, that's all one sentence. You remember chapter 1 was practically just two sentences from 3 to 15, for 3 to 14, and then from 15 to 23 were all one sentence each. Well, here 1 to 7 are all one sentence. And it's good to know that the main subject of this sentence doesn't even show up until verse 4. Verse 4, when we see, but God. God is the main subject of this sentence. And his action actually doesn't even show up until verse 4. Because verse 4 says, but God, and it describes all these things about God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our transgressions. Here's the main verb. He made us alive together with Christ. And verse 6, it continues. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So, verse 4 is obviously a very important verse. It talks about God's mercy. It talks about his love. Verse 6 goes on to talk about his, his grace. Actually, verse 5 talks about his grace. And then verse 7 mentions his kindness. Well, those are important attributes. Why wait until verse 4 to actually give us that information? Well, because unless you have the understanding of the first three verses, 
you're not in a position to fully understand and appreciate God's mercy, love, grace, and kindness. There's another observation I want to share as well. You remember the central command from Paul in chapter 4, verse 1, is for you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. You will notice that in these 10 verses. In verse 2, it talks about how you formerly walked. And then in verse 10, it ends in how you are going to walk or how you should walk. So walking is very central to the idea behind Ephesians, and walking is very central in these 10 verses that we are going to be looking at this morning, or actually the first three of those 10. Now, as a reminder, my purpose is to help you understand God's undeserved goodness in providing salvation to you so that you would be moved to joyfully serve him. And in this passage, Paul provides us, I'm talking about the first 10 verses, he provides us overall with four proofs. Four proofs of God's undeserved goodness to us through the gospel. And this morning, we're going to spend really the entire morning just on that first proof. So as you see in your bulletin, the first proof is this, the absolute need for the gospel. The absolute need for the gospel. Let's go ahead and reread verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, we, too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, when we take a look at verse 1, it starts off with a conjunction. The word and that tells you that this is not completely a brand new thought. Now, Paul had ended chapter one sharing how he prays for us, how he prayed for the Ephesians and really all believers, I would say. You remember, he wants us to know three things. He wanted us to know the hope of his calling. He wanted us to know the the glorious riches of God's inheritance in us as saints. But then the last half of the prayer was really focused upon the overpowering strength and might and power of God that's available to us who believe. And he used the example of Christ, that this was demonstrated, this was displayed when Christ was raised up and seated at the right hand of God. And so he ends up with this exaltation of Jesus Christ and of the power of God. And so when he starts chapter 2 and he says, and, there is this idea that the power of God has been demonstrated already in your life in this way. So that's how it's connected to the prayer that Paul has just completed. So chapter one, he remember, he starts off with that praise to God over all the spiritual blessings that God has given us. And then he prays that, you know, and understand these spiritual blessings in greater depth. But now the power of God really serves as an undercurrent to hear. So he says, and and what? And you were what? Dead. You were dead. Now, I want you to notice this also. I, when you look at verses 1, 2, and 3, we see the pronouns. In verse 1, we see you, and you were dead. In verse 2, we see in which you formerly walked. And then in verse 3, we see among them, we too all formerly lived. Now, we saw a similar kind of contrast between you and we from Paul in chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. And in that time when he said you and we, he was making a distinction between Gentiles and Jews. 
And we're going to see that kind of distinction here once again. But what we're going to find out is that there is a lot more in common between Jews and Gentiles than there are differences as it relates to our prior condition. And notice also that in verse 1 it says, and you were dead. You were. What tense is that? What verb tense? That's past tense. You are no longer dead. So the idea is that you were dead, but you were no longer dead. So the power of God is already seen there that you were dead, but the implication is that you no longer are dead. And that's the point of verses 4 through 6, that God made you alive together in Christ. Now, there's a paradox here when we think about the fact that we were once dead. Because when you look at verses 2 and 3, clearly, physically, we were alive. Because if we were completely dead, we couldn't do the things that we did in verses 2 and 3. So we have a paradox here. You're dead, and yet you are alive. Verse 1, how are we dead? Verse 1 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, that's going to be contrasted with verse 5. Verse 5, when God makes us alive together with him. But we were dead in our trespasses and sins. What does that mean? It means that you, no matter what you did, you were in disobedience to God. You were a sinner who continued to sin against God. Now, it doesn't mean everyone sins in exactly the same magnitude or the same amount. It's not to say that you are the worst possible person that you could be. But you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were a sinner before God. You were facing the judgment of God. Consider Romans chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. Paul says this. What then? Are we better than they? He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Are we better than than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. What Paul is pointing out there is that nobody in their own power seeks after God. Now, they may seek after false gods. They may seek after their own pursuits. They may seek after gods of their own making. But they will never seek after the one and true God, which is why no matter what they do, the fact that they don't seek after the true God or when they're confronted with the true God, they reject the true God, shows that they are continually dead in their sins. They're dead in their trespasses. So what are we looking at here? So instead of being people that seek after God, what is it that they do? Well, look at verse 2. From verses 2 and verses 3, we're going to see at least four different actions of what they do in two ways in which they're identified. But look at verse 2. It says, in which you formerly walked. Again, what tense is that? Past tense. There is an implication here that this is what you used to do, but you no longer do this as believers. It says, in which you formerly walked. And then right after that, it says, according to the course of this world. Now, literally, that in the Greek says, according to the age of this world. The age of this world. Now, by age, I don't mean how old the earth is. Age is, can also refer to a period of time. But in this case, it's really talking about the current age. I mean, when we look around from age to age, there are always different ideas and ideologies and things that are being taught that are against God. 
You know, from the time of Charles Darwin, we know that evolution became a big thing, you know, in this world. And people push science and evolution and, and they will explain all kinds of things that can't be proven by this theory of evolution. So age here, it's not just a time period, but it's really referring to our fallen world system. It's talking about how around us we are living in a fallen world. We know that from the Garden of Eden, from the fall of man, that this world is a fallen world. It is tainted by sin, and we're living in this fallen world. But in this fallen world, as a result of that fallenness, as a result of the sin, there's all kinds of wrong thinking. There's all kinds of rebellion against God. And every age in human history has had movements of thinking that were anti-biblical. I mean, just look at the world today. Just look around you. I mean, today, the, the big push in politics is socialism. Today, the big push is LGBTQ rights. You, you know, you see Chick-fil-A popping up in the news often. And, and it's often said that Chick-fil-A is supporting gay hate groups. And then when you do some more research, they're just supporting groups that affirm that the word of God says that homosexuality is a sin. But that's being turned into saying that we hate gays. No, no, we don't hate gays. We don't hate homosexuals. But we do affirm what the Word of God says. Gender fluidity is becoming a big thing. Your kids who are in school, if, they were, if they're at one of the public schools like in Los Angeles or one of the major cities, I don't know that it's taken hold as strongly here yet. But if you're in one of the major cities, kids today grow up with this idea of gender fluidity. That your gender is really just a social construct. It's not biological. It's more based upon how you feel and what it is that you desire. That's being taught. More and more kids think that gender is something that's subjective and not objective. We see this emphasis upon climate change in the world. We've got politicians that are saying the world is going to end in 12 years. We've got that same politician trying, and other politicians trying to push us to reduce our meat consumption so that we can help reduce the effects of global warming. We've got all this emphasis upon racial inequality. We've got pro-abortion rights. And I tell you what, even if you are a Republican, even if you are big on MAGA, make America great again, Listen, just because you're conservative, just because you have Judeo-Christian values, just because you vote for someone who, who stands for Christian ideals doesn't make you a Christian either. So we got to be wary of all the ways in which the world departs from God. So when it says that we followed after the course of this world, it doesn't mean that we followed it in all the exact same ways. There's a great amount of variety in which you can live your life in this world. There's a lot of individualism in this world. But, you know, the schemes of Satan, Satan, the way he operates, he's not about having you pick a specific system. He's about having you not pick a specific system. He's about you not knowing the true God. He's about you not reading the word of God, trusting the word of God and following the word of God. You can do whatever you want. Just don't do this. That's how Satan operates. That's why the gates to heaven are narrow. And the gates to destruction are wide indeed. And if you remember, if you've ever read through the book of Judges in the Old Testament, what was the main problem of the nation of Israel in the book of Judges? That they did what was right in their own eyes. And that is the world. The world operates according to what they think is right in their own eyes. But what they think is right in their own eyes is never what is truly right in God's eyes. 
And so we want to be able to recognize that's how we operate. We want to be able to recognize that that's how the world operates. But it's not just that we formerly walked according to the course of this world. It also says in verse 2 that we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, literally, the word for prince is the Greek word archon, is where we get the word archon, and it means ruler. So basically, ruler, that we followed after the ruler. And the word power, exousia, it can mean, it can mean power or authority. It's where we, where we get the idea of executive. So we, we followed after the ruler of the power of the air, which, of course, we know is who? It's Satan. It's Satan. Now, when it says that he is the ruler of the power of the air, what do we mean by air? Well, air is, obviously, we breathe it. We, we, we're living in it. We exist with it each and every single day. But air was often that realm considered between earth and heaven. And in fact, in terms of Satan, it really is part of heaven. It's one of the major misconceptions today that we think that Satan and his demons are underground. No, they're not underground. They're operating above us. They're in the heavenly places. It's often understood as the dwelling place of evil spirits. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. We see this there in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known throughout the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And then look at chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, according to the spiritual forces of wickedness. Where? In the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. In fact, I heard an interesting um, historical tidbit the other day. I was listening to some old recordings from... Um, the late um, R.C. Sproul, and he was talking about how Satan gets portrayed as, you know, and we've seen it, this red monkey suit with horns and, and a tail and a pitchfork, right? Where did that come from? Well, well, that came from the, I think, the medieval ages and the church recognizing that people were worried about the power and the influence of Satan. They decided to create an image that was intended for us to mock Satan with. It was intended, it looked so ridiculous that we would use it to actually mock Satan. And by mocking Satan that we would be able to resist him and that he would flee from us. Well, the next generation misconstrued it as being that's how we see Satan looking like. And so that image continues today where Satan gets portrayed in this ridiculous red monkey suit, a pitchfork and horns and a tail. And that's not at all what Satan looks like. In fact, Satan is a spirit. We're going to see that. In fact, we, you see that right there in verse 2, going back to chapter 2, verse 2. Satan doesn't look the way that this world portrays him. But you know what? Satan and the demons love nothing more than for you to misunderstand what they look like. Because when you read the letter of 2 Corinthians, you find that they are disguised as angels of light, as messengers of light, as servants of righteousness. More realistically... They look like you. They look like me. They don't look like the monstrosities that they're often portrayed to be. But as long as you believe those monstrosities, you never think that they would operate the way they do. Now, is Satan truly the ruler of the dominion over the air? Does he have dominion over the air? That's, that's what it means when he has authority. He has dominion. 
Is he the ruler? Well, obviously, we know that ultimately the ruler is who? Yeah, Jesus. He's, he's up at the right hand of God. We read about that last time at the end of chapter 1 in Paul's prayer when he talked about how, how God took Jesus and raised him up and placed him at the right hand. Jesus is reigning from heaven with all authority and rule over everyone. But this idea that Satan is the ruler of this world is prevalent. It's throughout Scripture. Let me just read for you some verses. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Paul says this, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 1 John 5, 19. 1 John 5, 19. You don't have to go there. Just listen. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And of course, if you've read the story of Job, in Job chapter 1, when Satan presents himself before God, God asks him, where have you been? And guess what Satan says? I've been roaming to and fro, walking about the earth. And then finally, in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, part of the temptation of Christ, it's very interesting that the last temptation that Satan presents before Christ is this. He tells them in Matthew chapter 4, verse 9, he says, all these things I will give to you, because he took them to a high mountain, showed them all the kingdoms of the world. He said, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Satan couldn't do that unless he was the ruler of this world. He wanted to offer Christ everything if he would just worship Satan rather than God. And, of course, Jesus said, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, as we continue in verse 2, though, reading again verse 2, it says, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and then it says, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, whenever we see the word spirit, we have to look in context, what do we mean by spirit? Because the Greek uses the same word. Every time you see spirit show up, it's the same word. Because spirit can refer to the Holy Spirit. We saw that in chapter 1. Chapter 1, uh, verses 13 through 14, refer to the Holy Spirit of promise, that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Spirit can refer to our own inner attitude. We just read John 4 this morning. God is seeking true worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. In spirit, meaning from the inside. From the inside, from our hearts, we would worship. Spirits can also refer to demons or angels. And we see here that this is of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Well, in context, it's pretty clear that the spirit is referring to the prince or the ruler of the power of the air. Referring to Satan. So Satan is actually a spirit. You can't see him, but you can often see his effects. Remember, Satan got a hold of Peter, right? After Jesus, um, after Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. What did Jesus say to Peter? Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my God and father in heaven revealed that to you. And then a moment later, when Jesus said that he must be crucified, that he, he must go to Jerusalem and be tried and crucified and killed by the elders, Peter jumps in front and says, may this never happen to you, Lord. Forbid, I forbid it. And what did Jesus say then? Get thee behind me, Satan. 
So we don't see Satan directly, but we often see his effects when he is working through the world. And it says here that the spirit, that this spirit, Satan, is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, this is in contrast to what we had learned previously in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at chapter 1 again. Chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. I had mentioned this, but let's go ahead and read this. Chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, part of the blessings from God to you. Paul writes this, In him you also, after having listening, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So in you, you have the power of the Holy Spirit. In the world, they have the spirit of Satan. The spirit of Satan is operating amongst them. And also, there's another word here. When it says that this is the spirit that is now working, the word for working comes from the Greek word energeo. It's where we get the word energy. So where we get the word energy, and we saw the same word being used in Ephesians 1.19. Towards the end of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1.19, Paul said this, What is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of the strength of his might? So while Satan is working in the world, the power of God is working in you. The spirit is working in you. But then we see here this identification, sons of disobedience. Once again, this also ties back to chapter 1, because part of the spiritual blessings of God, going back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, is that he predestined you to what? To adoption as sons. Part of your salvation, part of your calling, part of what happened to you when, you when you were moved to repent of your sins and to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord is that you were adopted as sons of God into his family. But here, what we see here in the world is that Satan works in the sons of disobedience. They are characterized by disobedience. They continue to disobey God and they have no other choice but to disobey God. Now, what is the implication here? The implication here to us, remember that when you're looking into your past, the whole reason why you became a believer, it was not by your own will. You were disobedient to God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were following after the course of this world. You were following after the prince of the power of the air. You were taken out of that by the power of God. And it is a reason for us to look back and be thankful. We are no longer sons of disobedience, but now we are considered sons of the Most High. We are considered members of his own family. But for unbelievers around you, as you witness to them, you know, sometimes we can get caught up, you know, getting moralistic, getting righteous upon those who are not Christians. You know, the homosexuality issue is a perfect example. You know, you can be beating someone over the head over their sins about how they're homosexuals, they're not operating the way God designed them to be, and certainly that's true. But their greatest problem is that they don't know Christ. They need the power of God in their life to give them a new heart. And you know, I, I remind myself often, no matter how bad someone is in the world, and certainly we see lots of examples of evil and wickedness in this world, no matter how bad someone is, I know that the only difference between that person and me is the work of the Holy Spirit in my life by the grace of God. And you too should remind yourself of that often. 
Remind yourself that you were rescued from that. And as you witness to people, the only thing that will rescue them from their sins is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is why we share. But as we continue on, we look at verse 3. Verse 3, we see among them, we too all formerly lived. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Who is Paul referring to when he says among them? Well, among them, at the very end of verse 2, is the sons of disobedience. So Paul is saying among them, meaning among the sons of disobedience, we, and he's talking about Jewish believers, we too all formerly lived. And again, we see the past tense in those verbs. This is how we once lived, but the idea is this is now no longer how we live now. But we all formerly lived. And, and remember, going back to verse 1, verse 1 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So verse 2 and verse 3 is helping to explain how we were dead, how that looked, what, what that looked like in our lives. So we all formerly lived, and Paul says we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Lusts of our flesh. Now, lust is not simply just sexual immorality. It's often associated with that but lust really is just any eager desire any longing that you have any strong desire whether at any cost you must get food and you're willing to forsake everything else to get food or you must go shopping you know you've got that urge to go shopping i remember having a co-worker once who told me that whenever she was in a bad mood she would automatically feel better just by going shopping you know, so lust is anything that we desire in the world. It could be video games. You know, it could be watching TV. It could be watching, you know, show after show on the television, television set or through, through some sort of online streaming service. You know, when you really should be informing your mind with the word of God. Maybe you should be in prayer. Maybe you should be spending more time with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But when he says the lust of our flesh... Flesh, obviously in this case, we look at flesh as talking about the sinful being. But literally, flesh is just our material being, right? So it can be literally, it's just referring to our material being. We are flesh and blood. But here in the lust of our flesh is talking about our sinful being. And then he goes on. It's not that we, that we just lived in the lust of our flesh, but we also lived indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, literally in the Greek, this is doing. Okay, the word for indulging is the word for doing. And, and desire, the word for desire there, is often the word used for will, like the will of God. This is the will of God for you. In fact, the will of God shows up numerous times in chapter 1, and this is the word that's used. So the idea here is that you're, by indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, you're literally just doing the will of the flesh. You're doing whatever, whatever your flesh and your mind desires to do. And flesh, in this case, where the flesh is referring to whatever you feel and your mind is referring to whatever you think. So Paul here is saying, though we were Jews, before we came to Christ, we too were just simply doing whatever our mind and our hearts desired. You see, that is very important because by the time you get to the time of Jesus Christ, when he came, the religious leaders were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and externally they were no longer worshiping false gods. They were not worshiping the Baals or the Asherahs of the Old Testament. They externally were worshiping Yahweh. They were worshiping the God of their Bible. 
But the reality was they really weren't. Because if they were, they would have accepted Jesus Christ. They would have recognized Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Instead, what they were doing is that they were living in the lust of their flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Notice here that what Paul is saying is that there really just no was, there was no resistance to sin, really. We just did whatever we wanted here. But he goes on to say at the end of chapter 3 that we were by nature, by nature, children of wrath. Now, it's a very popular thing today to say, I was born this way, right? Whenever, there, whenever there's, uh, there's an issue of sin, whenever there's an issue of rebellion, a lot of people say, well, I was just born that way. So in other words, you just got to accept it. Well, being born this way is actually biblical because it says you're by nature children of wrath. You're by nature sinners. You are by nature disobedient. You are by nature haters of God. But it's never an excuse to continue doing those things. And especially for those of us as believers, we cannot simply say, I was born this way. Rather, we must recognize that we are being conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we must ask, what is it that Jesus Christ looks like in this area of my life? And how must I change in order to look more like him? But there's something else, too, when he says, by nature, we were children of wrath. What is wrath? And whose wrath are we talking about? Well, wrath is really the outpouring of God's anger. This is the wrath of God. In fact, just listen to Matthew 3, 7. Matthew 3, 7. This is John the Baptist. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And if you would, for a moment, turn with me to the book of John, the book of John. So turn a few books over to the left, past Romans, past Acts. And you'll get to the book of John. It's the fourth gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament. Let's take a look at this for just a moment. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 16. A lot of you guys know this verse by heart. John chapter 3, verse 16. And as we look at John chapter 3, verse 16, we have this very familiar statement from Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then when you go down to verse 36, verse 36 same chapter, verse 36. Verse 36 reads, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son. So in other words, the opposite of believing in God is to disobey him. The opposite of believing in Jesus Christ is to disobey Jesus Christ. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but what? The wrath of God abides on him. So going back to Ephesians 1, 
I mean, chapter 2, Ephesians 2, verse 3, when Paul says we were by nature children of wrath, he is talking about Jewish believers that even as Jews, even those who supposedly worship the God of the Old Testament, they were by nature children of wrath. And what does that mean? That means they were headed towards judgment. They, too, were facing the wrath of God. Now, as we look at these comparisons between verse 2 and 3, is children of wrath different from sons of disobedience? No. Look look at the end of verse 3. It says, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Sons of disobedience, children of wrath, that describes everyone without Christ, even Jews. Even Jews who worship the God of the Old Testament outside but would not acknowledge the Messiah. So Paul here, though he made distinctions between Gentile believers and Jewish believers, there's a lot more in common than there is different. And so to recap, when we look at these three verses overall, to be dead in your trespasses, it means you walked according to the course of this world. It means you walked according to the ruler of the power of the air, that you were sons of disobedience. You lived in the lust of your flesh, doing the will of your flesh and your mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Is there anything good here? Does Paul say anything positive about people without Jesus Christ? There's nothing good here. There's absolutely nothing positive. And why was this needed? Why go through these links in these first three verses? Because as I mentioned, when you get to verse 4, when you get to verse 4, it says, But God, because of his mercy, his rich mercy, and his, his love by which he loved us, and his kindness, and his grace, and all those things. You can't fully understand that unless you understood where you once were. Unless you understood that you were under the power of, of the ruler of the air. You were under his authority. And it took the power of God, the power of God to overcome that, to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. But also, he did it out of kindness, mercy, grace, and love. The truth is, when we look at this passage, I know a lot of us often talk about our salvation testimony as being a time in which we chose God. You know, I I heard this and I chose God. I heard that and I chose God. Let me tell you theologically, I understand what you say when you say that, but theologically, we never chose God. You see, when you are dead in your trespasses and sins, you have no ability to choose God. You are constantly turned away from God. You are not seeking him. You are not doing any good. You are rejecting him in every single way. And that's even proven if you read on in verses 4 and 5. In verse 5, it says, while you were dead, God made you alive. There was nothing you did to earn your salvation. There was, no, there was no aha moment while you were dead in your trespasses and sins. God is the one that had to make you alive. And just to share a little personal testimony, I can tell you this. I chose God when I was in college at UCLA. I chose God when I was in college when I was at UCLA. But for the next 10 years, there was no fruit in my life. I was not walking. I had no interest in reading the Bible, no interest in praying, no interest in being in church. Had no knowledge of of what the word of God said, aside from just the basics of the gospel. And then it wasn't until over 10 years later that I had to come back to church. I had to take this class called Fundamentals of the Faith. 
And it was at that time that God chose me. And I realized that, you know what, it was never a time where I said, wow, I'm not a believer. I need to really confess. No, God actually just reached out to me and started to just give me a new heart to really understand his word, to have new desires, to have new priorities. And from that time, by the grace of God, by the will of God, I remember with the next new year that came, I resolved at that time. I said, you know what, I just want to serve God. And I knew that was genuine because at that time, that's all that really mattered to me. And hopefully, day by day, I I pray that that is continually all that matters to me. The power of God is to overcome that deadness of your sins and trespasses. You look at this section of Scripture, there is nothing that you contributed. There is no ability you had to be able to choose God. There is nothing that you did that was good before God. God had to regenerate you so that you would respond. And that is the power of God. Now, if you're here this morning and you're hearing this and you're realizing that you too have been dead in your trespasses and sins, if you realize that you're living in a world that is without hope, because indeed this world will come to an end, because while Jesus came the first time in order to provide salvation, he is going to come a second time in order to bring judgment. The wrath of God is upon all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, God and Jesus Christ. This world will teach you that you can be religious, that you can be spiritual, that you don't need to choose a certain path. You don't need to believe in a certain way. But I am giving you objective truth that there is a God and creator and there's his son, Jesus Christ, and the spirit that works within us. And Jesus Christ came into this world not simply to be a spiritual leader, not simply just to be an example to us. He came because he resolved our greatest need, that in our trespasses and sins that required judgment, that required payment, Jesus Christ went to the cross and paid for that sin himself. The sins of all those who would believe. So if you're finding this morning that you're here without the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're finding that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but you no longer want to be, if you feel the urge in your heart that that you want to know Jesus Christ, that you want to come forward, you want to be saved by God, all it takes right now is for you to repent of your sins and to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you will have the gift of eternal life. And you will be able to walk in newness of life. You will be able to walk in ways that you did not walk before. You will have a new purpose. You have new direction. You will have a new family. And you have a hope in the future that is eternal. That is good. Beyond anything that you can comprehend. But do not delay that decision. Do not leave here without talking to one of the deacons or talking to myself. In fact, deacons in the audience, would you stand up for a moment? I know I see um, some of you. Yeah, so look around. We've got um, five deacons. And ladies, if you need to speak to someone, just go to one of those deacons. They'll lead you to their wives, all of them wonderful women of God. And they will help you. They will pray with you. But don't leave without doing that because you want eternal life. You don't want to be lost in this world. You don't want to be following after Satan. You don't want to be following after the schemes of this world, after all the false beliefs and ideologies which change from age to age. And it's going to lead you to nothing but death. Put your faith into the Son of God and his work for you on the cross. And for the rest of us, I pray that this was a helpful reminder to us of just of what we've been rescued from. Give praise to God, because it is a miracle of God that we have been saved. It is a miracle of God that we know the truth. And this should humble us. 
This should absolutely humble us and, and, and make us more and more just desire to serve the one who is in charge, the one who has authority. Because when you remember what you have been saved out of, when you remember what you were headed towards, when you remember the eternal wrath that you had upon your head, the most natural response is to give praise to God that we've been saved and to seek to do everything we can to glorify him and to walk in a way that he has called us to walk. Let me go ahead and close out in prayer.